Dati is not a parallel word to orthodox. Orthodox means adhering to rules. Dati means religious, which someone might define as how connected they feel to Hashem, to spirituality, to tefillah, to learning Torah, to religious values and ideals. Of course, someone has to keep halachic, but educationally, I find at least that the emphasis is often put on these other things. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The war in Israel, which is now over 100 days old, has in some ways highlighted the commonalities between all Jews across the world, no matter where they live, and in other ways demonstrated the gaps that continue to exist between an Israeli public that's dealing with the reality of war on our doorsteps and a non-Israeli Jewish world which, despite its emotional investment in Israel, obviously is not experiencing war in the same way that Israelis do. With that in mind, it seemed like a good opportunity to discuss one of the most important areas of both overlap and divergence, namely the broadly defined modern Orthodox world that exists outside of Israel and the Dati Lumi world in Israel, that is, the community that defines itself as national religious. Shana Goldberg has been on this podcast before, and her insights into tricky subjects like this are always nuanced and welcome. For that reason, it was a pleasure to have her back on the podcast to talk about the definitions of the words modern, orthodox, dati, and lumi, and the various ways that these communities are similar and different. We also talked about differences in the ways the kids are raised in Israel and outside of Israel, both at home and at school, and some of the advantages and disadvantages associated with each. We tried to avoid value judgments and offer as nuanced and accurate a portrayal as possible. Not surprisingly, this discussion is largely predicated upon personal experience. I think that the insights that Shana brings to the table will hopefully spark important conversations about how best to raise our children and how best to live our lives, trying to assimilate the best from each world into our lives while avoiding some of the pitfalls that are part of them as well. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. My most recent article is entitled Gaslighting Jews on a National Scale and describes the fallacy of those who try to define a Judaism that does not include a love of and intimate connection with the land of Israel. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Shana Goldberg, the author of What Do You Really Want?, teaches in the Stella K. Abraham Beit Midrash for Women in Migdal Oz, is a Yoetzer Halacha, a contributing editor for Drachecha, womenandmitzvot.org, and a frequent blogger for Times of Israel. She lives in Alon Shvut, Israel, with her husband Judah and their five children. Shana Goldberg, thank you once again for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a pleasure to be back here with you. We're going to talk about the different religious worlds that many of us inhabit, particularly the world of modern orthodoxy that's common in many English-speaking countries, and the various communities that identify broadly as Datilumi, or national religious, here in Israel where you and I reside. I think this is especially important to discuss today, now, 
given that after the events of October 7th and the aftermath, the connection between Israel and diaspora Jewry in some ways is extremely strong. And in some ways we see a disconnect, which I think is inevitable given the different experiences that we're having. Perhaps the best way to express this, I was thinking, is to say that emotionally our ties are tighter than ever, though experientially the gap is wider than ever. That's my take. And I'd like to hear your take, Shana. Why do you think it's important for us to talk about this topic today? So this is a topic that I find myself spending a lot of time thinking about in general since our Aliyah 12 and a half years ago. But there are two reasons why it's particularly on my mind right now. The first is that for anyone who's made Aliyah to Israel from America or any other Anglo country and is raising kids here, it's very, very clear that day-to-day life and the overall culture that surrounds us and surrounds our children is very different in many significant ways than the one that we grew up in. And I think, though, that there's no time that you feel this more than in the middle of a war or in the middle of a time of terror. It's not just that our children are being exposed to situations and realities and questions and dilemmas and pain that we ourselves never had to contend with, but it's also that the way that all of that is processed and dealt with and the coping mechanisms that are at play and the conversations that are had, a lot of those are very new and different for many of us coming uh, from the upbringing that we had. And I find that the more that we are able to put our finger on and formulate into words and express some of the differences that we are experiencing. So for those of us who live here in Israel, we're better able to understand ourselves and our children and navigate life um, in war and always. So that's the first thing. But secondly, I think since October 7th, there's been an increased focus from Jewish communities around the world on major events in Israel. I saw a chart recently actually that showed that the Times of Israel um, website readership has increased over 600% in October alone, and then an additional 400% on top of that in November. So I don't think, though, that the renewed interest that we're seeing is only on the news, although obviously that's forefront in people's minds. I think I'm also feeling and experiencing a renewed interest coming from around the world, from Jewish communities around the world, and understanding what Israelis are going through, what our daily experience is like. And I I don't think that this is an important topic only for those who are really like actively thinking about considering Aliyah. I think it's a time that Jewish life everywhere, all over the world, no matter where you live, has been affected and is in flux, and where people are taking kind of a step back and thinking and zooming out a little bit about their day-to-day life. And I think that provides us with an opportunity to share with each other in both directions and to learn from each other um, and to talk about like how different communities function and what's at their core. And even though there definitely are real differences, I think that the potential for growth that could come from deeper understanding and knowledge of the different communities' strengths um, is very, very, very powerful because deep understanding of each other almost always leads to like feeling more connected and to feeling more respect for each other. And when there is interest, I think in both directions of what people now are experiencing, there's more of an opportunity to dialogue and to talk about those things. Now, I certainly agree with that, and I am an advocate of talking about differences. I think it's very important. But some people, Shana, might say that highlighting differences is an act of disunity of sorts, meaning rather than highlighting what binds us, we're talking about the things that divide us. And at this time, whatever that means, people often say, 
You can't do that. Today is a time for bringing us together and not emphasizing any distinctions or differences. Again, I disagree with that. I don't think that's correct. I don't even think that's a good definition of unity. What do you think? Do you think, obviously, you agree that this is a time to talk about it, but do you think that there's some fear of the potential of disunity erupting from highlighting differences? I hear, I guess, I understand where those people are coming from, but I actually think that if differences are real and they exist, so they're real and they exist, and Dafka, a way that you could create more unity is by giving people an opportunity to really listen to each other and to understand each other. Sometimes you realize that you have way more in common than you think. Sometimes you realize that something that you thought was actually a false assumption. Sometimes you're able to bridge a gap. So I don't think that ignoring differences is a way that makes us come uh, more together. Maybe it's a superficial band-aid, but if you want real unity, deep unity, true unity, genuine unity that helps people in authentic ways feel closer to each other, then I think uh, conversation and dialogue, at least I find in my life, is always at the center of that. And I'll add to that, my own take on that, is that unity is not everyone thinking the exact same thing. Unity can be that we work together with our differences, working together towards a common goal, however that goal is defined, acknowledging that you have your derech, you have your way, and I have my own way, and they may diverge and may even disagree. I think of the Mishnah Masach and Avot, where it talks about an argument that continues forever, which is a positive thing, is the argument of Hill and Shammai. Because mm-hmm. we don't say that when you have a good argument, that's the shame Shamayim, that's for the sake of heaven, we want to eliminate it. We want it to continue, and that actually, that difference, continuing to disagree, is actually a hallmark of doing things the same Shamayim, because we're not trying to undermine the person as a human being or as a member of the Jewish people. We're disagreeing about different ways of getting to the same goal. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Shane, our conversation today will certainly be based largely on personal reflections rather than on an academic study of the issues, at least from my perspective. For that reason, I think it's important to let listeners know our backgrounds and how we're coming to this issue. So let's start off with you. Can you open up by telling us what kind of community you grew up in, where you grew up? You said you made Aliyah 12 years ago, why you decided to make Aliyah, and with which community in Israel you identify today? Sure, I think that's definitely very important for framing this conversation. Um, I was born in 1979, and I grew up in Great Neck, New York, the oldest of four daughters of Rabbi Yaakov and Abby Lerner, who were the rabbi and rabbitson of the youngest child of Great Neck for 45 years. And I'd say um, I had a pretty typical American modern Orthodox upbringing. Great Neck had a few large Ashkenazi schools and also many uh, Persian Bate, uh, Knesset, I was educated in modern Orthodox schools in the 80s and 90s. I went to Central for high school, and then I went to Yeshiva University Stern College, to GPAT, which is the graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies. And I got my master's from Azriyeli Graduate School. And I also did the Yoetzev Halakha program um, at Nishmat in Israel. And after getting married, um, and spending a few years in Philadelphia, where my husband was in medical school at Penn, and then moving to Bergenfield so he could do his residency. And at that time, I taught him my note, and I worked as a Yotzel Alakha for several shuls in Tinek and Englewood. Um, at that time, when we finished our training and those early years of marriage, we made Aliyah in July 2011. 
um, to Adonshved in Gush Etzion. And I think what really drove us to make Aliyah was just that feeling of like, we want to um, we want to be on the Migrash, on the playing fields. We want to raise our children, you know, where the future of Am Yisrael is going to be. It was very hard for us to leave our families, our parents, and some of our siblings behind. But we felt that making Aliyah was the best way to keep our current family together and not have children end up, some in Israel and some in America. Um, and since then, since uh, 2011, we've been here in Gush Etzion, and I also work in Migdaluz, which is an Israeli women's Beit Midrash, that's the sister school of Yeshivat Haaretzion, although we are careful to say that even though there's a shared overall hashkapa and worldview with the yeshiva, Migdaluz definitely has its own flavor, and it's not exactly a gush for women. Um, and I would say both living in the gush and also teaching in Migdaluz, I would definitely um, associate myself with the religious community here in Israel that solidly identifies with like the teachings and the influence of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Gush and the son-in-law of Rav Soloveitchik. And um, I was thinking about how best to summarize, and I realized the Yeshiva here has a slogan, which is immersed in Torah, engage with the world. And I would say that balance uh, definitely is central to the community that I belong in here in Israel. That's very interesting because immersed in Torah, engaged with the world almost sounds like an American modern Orthodox style slogan rather than the typical Dati Lumi national religious philosophy that we're used to over yes. here. So I guess we'll get into that as well. Definitely. And I was curious, actually, Scott, because I realized that beyond knowing that you lived in Boston um, at some point and grew up with my cousins there, I really don't know much about your background. So I did grow up in Boston. I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts and grew up in Newton and went to Maimonides with your cousins, the Shapiros. In fact, Avner Shapiro was in my class and his father, Rabbi David Shapiro, was the principal of Maimonides when I was there the entire time I was there. After that, I went to Yeshiva Kotel, followed by going to Brandeis, coming back to Israel for Yeshiva, some graduate school Long story short is I came to Israel when I was 25 years old for good. Wow. That was in February 1996. I was born in 1970. And you were single? Or I came here single. I came here single, yeah. went back to yeshiva. In fact, I'd been in graduate school thinking I was going to get a graduate degree in Jewish studies, but I simply missed Israel and I missed yeshiva. So I dropped it in the middle and came back to study for smicha. And at that point... Once I was in yeshiva, I met my wife, Eliza, here, and we got married in 1997, and we have our seven children here. Originally, we lived in Yushalayim, and we now live in Beit Shemesh. I've lived in Ramat Beit Shemesh for about 24 years, I think. So it's been quite a while. My wife made Aliyah when she was in 10th grade with her family to Yushalayim. She lived in Harnof, and now her parents, my in-laws, live in Ramot. And very much in the same vein that you said, I would largely describe my religious community although I'll give an asterisk to that, I would largely describe it as being the Dati Umi community, the national religious community in Israel, or perhaps what we'd call the centrist Orthodox community of the United States. And the fact that I'm sort of hedging and saying both is partially a factor because I am not a big fan of defining communities for individuals. I understand that we have to have denominations. We have to define ourselves in some way simply because otherwise you don't know what shul is right for you, where you'll feel comfortable. But by and large, I feel that every individual should have an individual hashkafa that's right for that individual, up to the point that really there's a famous line, the Chazal tell us, there are 70 facets to the Torah, which the great Kabbalist, the Ramak, and I believe the Arizal as well, said it's actually 600,000 facets to the Torah. And mm. that idea, 600,000, is representative of the entire population of Israel that was at Sinai, meaning 
every individual needs to have a hashkafa, which is uniquely his or hers alone. And obviously there are broad categories that we can put together in order to see where they belong, see where they feel comfortable. But I think it's actually something which we want for people to actually have their own way of looking at things, which might be uniquely their own. And to that degree, I don't love putting myself in a box. The place I dive in the morning is a relatively Haredi shul, a modern Haredi shul, but a Haredi shul. The place I dive in on Shabbos is a Datilumi shul run by one of Rav Aaron Soloveitchik's sons, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik. So there are a lot of different worlds over there. And I like the fact that I'm not putting myself in one particular area. And that said, I still would say that by and large, I'm in the Datilumi world. My son's right now in the army. And that, I guess, says Mm -hmm. everything that needs to be known about that. I really appreciate that. And I identify with that in the sense that I remember uh, years ago hearing Rabbi Jonathan Rosenblatt from Riverdale speak. And he said he was speaking to 11th graders in note, and he told them, you don't register for an identity. You build an identity and you create an identity and you take a little bit from everything that comes your way and figure out, you know, what what feels right to you. So I think I uh, definitely hold that up as a value that uh, in my own life, I was trying to kind of take from different things, even though at the end of the day, we do belong to certain, you know, I guess, uh, segments within a broader a broader, more, I don't know. You know There's an idealistic but, streak that I'm yeah. asserting while at the same time realizing that pragmatically we actually do belong to communities whether I like it or not. And it's just the way <laughs> things are. And there are very good things about that as well. I want to ask you now about Migdalos, which is the seminary mm-hmm. in which you teach. I think it's a good place to open up our conversation about some of the differences between modern orthodoxy outside of Israel and the Datilumi world in Israel, because that is a place where both Israelis and Americans learned together. In fact, a funny story was that my daughter, Tali, who's now in her third year in Migdalos, was in your class in her first year, and mm-hmm. it was an Israeli class, and you had no idea that she was actually an American citizen who spoke English in addition to being an Israeli citizen. No idea Hebrew. until she showed up at grandparents' night with the uh, English-speaking <laughs> grandparents. And I said, Tali, how did you not speak to me in English the entire year? But she probably laughed. At this point. <laughs> Yes, all these secret Anglos that speak to me in Hebrew until the <laughs> truth comes out. So let's talk about your experience there in Migdalos, where you have contact with both Israelis and Americans of the same age. What are some of the major distinctions, Shana, that you see there, both in terms of the students themselves, given where they're coming from, and in terms of what you're expected to teach them and what they want to get out of their time in the Midrashah? It's such a great question. And it's exactly where like these issues and topics started to percolate in my mind because like smacked me in the face as soon as I made Aliyah. So Migdalos, where I teach, is an Israeli Beit Midrash. There's over 200 Israeli students that come from across the country. But in addition, there's also a group of around 25 to 30 overseas students who we refer to as Benot Hul, who come mostly from America, but also some from Canada, England, Australia, South Africa, and they're completely integrated into the program. It's not a separate program. They're completely integrated with some additional support staff, but they are in all the same classes. And because of this mix, the differences between the two groups are very apparent and come up a lot and something that we think about and talk about all the time. So one of the first things that I noticed when I came to Migdaluz was the emphasis on spirituality. There were terms that were thrown around like right away, like your spiritual world or your your spiritual language that I had no idea what they were referring to and talking about. This was coming from Um, the Israeli students. Yeah. And and from the staff and like just in the air, you know, Um, Safa Ruchani. I'm like, okay, I know what a Safa is. I know what Ruchani is, spiritual. Like, what do they mean a spiritual language? 
Now, there's also a lot of emphasis on developing your inner religious world, on your relationship with Hashem, on your connection to tefillah. There's a lot of really intense, soulful singing amygdalos. There's a lot of discussion and self-reflection and what they call the seda, which is like when they go around and they make everybody share. And students are always being asked to reflect on the topics that they're learning and they're asked to share themselves and in quite personal ways sometimes. And it's also a very um, like fluid and open learning environment in the sense that like teachers often let the students be at the center of the learning, at the center of the conversation, and they'll take the class in the direction that the students go. Now, I come from a world in America where the academic focus was on developing skills, reading text, analyzing and breaking things down, comparing and contrasting sources, thinking rationally, delving deeply into a topic, uh, constructing good arguments, writing a coherent essay or paper. The learning was much more methodological and analytic. And there were systems in place for how you approach learning Tanakh or how you open a page of Gemara. You were taught an approach. And there is also an effort to like kind of get in as much content as possible. Like in a good class of 45 minutes, you could take five pages of copious notes and the teaching was mostly frontal, which doesn't mean that students don't participate. There's a, there was a lot of student participation, but the participation was to answer questions or to share observations. It wasn't usually about sharing feelings. So the main difference that I felt off the bat walking into Migdaluz wasn't so much in what I was expected to teach, because I teach Halacha and Tanakh and some topics in Machshava, and those were similar subjects to what I taught before I made Aliyah. The newness was observing how so much of the teaching around me takes place, more the style than the content. And in the beginning, it really threw me. And I had a lot of critique about the approach. And I want to be honest that to this day in my personal classes, my style is still much more along the lines of how I was taught in America. I have a lot of material that I want to cover. And I actually find that even my hardcore Israeli students, they really enjoy, like they enjoy learning content and they enjoy that the class is very organized. And I, I don't think I'm the only teacher in Migdaluz who teaches like that. But I have over time come to really appreciate that there's also something really beautiful and amazing and different that happens when the teaching is more open and flexible and student-centered. And I think both of these methods have a lot to offer, and it's the mix of them um, that can be uh, really, really fantastic. And I'll, I'll just share one little uh, story, and then I'm so curious to hear, like, if you experienced this also, like, through through your children. But I'll share one story, which is that years ago, there was an Israeli who walked out of a class, and she commented, whoa, you know, I really thought I was intellectual before I came here, and I met the Americans. And then an American who was standing next to her said, well, that's really funny, because I thought I was spiritual until I came here and met the Israelis. And now it's a cute story, but it also captures something quite deep. And I don't think that these differences are true only on a Midrashah seminary yeshiva level. I see them playing out in my kids' high schools. I see them playing out even in elementary school, where there's focus on chassidut, on class discussions, on, you know, nifgash kvutsati. Um, and I think there's explanations for why the education here is different that we could get into. But I'm really curious if uh, in Beit Shemesh and if you're in your children's education, you've also experienced this. That's so interesting you say that. And I have a lot to ask about that alone, simply because that's not really my own children's experience, at least when they go to 
yeshivot. For example, when my son Ephraim was in Kerem Biavna, I actually wanted to critique it partially. This is not a critique of KBY per se, but in a certain sense, I felt bad because he was experiencing a classic heavy yeshiva that was not very ruchani. It's not that they weren't religious people, obviously. Obviously, it's a very religious and spiritual yeshiva. But the emphasis on spirituality, which often in post-high school yeshivot that are designed for people from Chutz Laaretz, I used to run one myself, there is a heavy, heavy emphasis on that experiential, the ruchani, the singing, which he simply did not have there. It's almost like Chutznik Yeshivot, not that are part of Hezder Yeshivot, but they were built for Americans or built for people from Chutzlaretz, might be built on that same model like Migdalos rather than on the model of the Yeshivot. They're more similar to that in some ways because of this heavy emphasis, at least as I understand it, on spirituality. But I wanted to ask you as well, Shana, do you think that that experience is unique to the Midrashah of which you are a part? Or is it something about Israeli society that is probably true in many other places as well? I'll give you one more example. The reason I ask that is that my daughter Meira was in Nishmat, where you became a Yosef Halacha. Mm-hmm. And at least from what I understand, that felt more like a yeshiva model. She got a lot out of it. And it was a beautiful place and it was a very spiritual place, but it felt more intellectual in the way that she described it more so than what you're describing in your experience. So I don't mean to say that it's not intellectual and that it's not um, focused on serious learning, you know, Khalila, uh, like it's very- oh, I don't serious. mean that either, of course. Yes. I'm just talking a matter of emphasis. That's what I'm referring to. It's just that like, it's again, like, I guess Safa is the right word in Hebrew, like the the language in which um, ideas are spoken about, um, at least from what I experience and also with my children and like my, my, I have a bunch of boys who went through Chorev and um, also there, how I see the Mude Kodesh's approach is less in that like we're gonna, analyze with that rational thinking the sources that doesn't mean it's not you know intellectual and they don't care about covering ground or whatever but it's always kind of more with that uh connection to the personal uh, a little bit more of a personal place in terms of way more class discussions or way more like um we're in a race to finish what we have to do and more like kind of where is this hitting you you know uh, and a lot of uh, how do you connect to this and where does this meet you and sometimes my kids are like okay we just want to learn you know and like um so i find that but i really but i think you're making a very good point that um while i do think and i think we'll, we'll get into more kind of um, how even the terms modern orthodoxy and Zatilumi are different. I think that explains some of this. It is important to uh, emphasize, you know, continually throughout this conversation that at the end of the day, every institution is different and every community is going to have a little bit of a different balance. So I'm for sure influenced by what, by what I've personally experienced and, but I, and what I see around me, which I'm sure is not, you know, the case for everybody. Yeah. And I also want to emphasize that my own observations are by definition anecdotal and not a some sort of objective statement about the reality of these yeshivot. And again, there's nothing pejorative. It's simply a matter of what I see them doing and what they seem to emphasize. That mifgash, that connection, that meeting with God, which frankly, I wish that my son in Karim Biyavna had had more of rather than the classic yeshiva style that was there. I think it would be a combination that would be helpful. I think some of the classic yeshiva really feel that weight of like continuing and bearing the misura of old, you know, and the more they're in more of that line of like the 
classic model that was in Europe or whatever, the less you're going to feel that. The more of an Israeli kind of um, Torah Eretz Israel approach they have, the more you're going to feel that spiritual side. So I don't know where KBY fits in in that spectrum, but um, I think a lot of times it, it does fall along like kinds of certain different values or places that different institutions see themselves in terms of their specific goals. Now let's move broader than just the Shivot or seminaries that Midrash showed that we've taught in and that we've seen and describe some of the differences in larger frame of what we might call modern Orthodox and Chutzlaretz versus Dati Lumi, National Religious in Israel. I'd like to open up talking about those terms themselves, Dati Lumi, National Religious or Religious National, and Modern Orthodox, or maybe we prefer Centrist Orthodox. I know that Rabbi Lambs, that's all, used to be strong in his opinion that it should be called Centrist Orthodoxy. Regardless, most people do call it modern, so I guess for now we'll stick with that. So without getting into any value judgments, what are some of the ways, Shana, that you see Dati in that Dati Lumi phraseology being distinct from the Orthodox in the Modern Orthodox phraseology? In what ways do they intersect and how are they different? I mean, I think the difference in the names is actually um, quite significant in a number of ways. And again, before I share any of them, I again want to emphasize that I'm only speaking from my personal place and from my and my husband's experience. Um, both the Mon Orthodox world in America and around the world and the Dati Lumi world in Israel, as we keep saying, are not monolithic. They have so many different shades and stripes and segments of the community. So we're not claiming that anything that any of us say uh, is true for everyone who identifies with either of these communities, especially if they're not from America, where we were raised. I imagine that some of the things that I think about will resonate more and some less and maybe some um, not at all, but I'm going to still try to put into words some of the key differences that that we experience and that uh, it took some time to put you know, my finger on. And just before you do, I want to interject that what you said right now is exactly the point of what I see the objective of this podcast is. In general, the podcast is designed and this podcast series is designed to open up conversations. So if someone says, oh, I think that's wrong, I disagree with that, that's not my experience, I look at that as a positive. The goal here isn't to tell people how it is, but to open up conversations so that people can figure out for themselves whether they agree or disagree. Okay, please continue, Shana. Yeah. And also, I'm not interested in making a judgment, like you said, of which community is doing it better. I think each has its strengths and weaknesses. And as an Anglo-Israeli who made Aliyah from the Mount Orthodox community in America, I'm first just trying to even just understand and grasp what I'm seeing and experiencing before I even get to what do I think about it. Okay, so the way that I have thought about this is that when you look up the word Orthodox, Orthodox literally means conforming with established or accepted standards. That could be in religion, in behaviors, and attitudes. So in the education that I got in America, halacha and following rules and norms was given center stage. So halacha and adhering to it is what defines your religious observance and what is emphasized as most important, even if not everyone actually keeps it all the time. So especially in the diaspora, I think, where there's a real risk of assimilation, the goal is to survive, to keep the Torah, to keep our nation going, to continue and not lose the Mesorah, and to raise children who will maintain that Jewish identity. So again, I'm not saying that in actual reality, all modern Orthodox Jews always place halacha at the center of their life. We know that, unfortunately, that's not always the case. 
But educationally, in the modern Orthodox education system, I think there is a heavy focus on being Orthodox, which means on maintaining all the Jewish practices that define Orthodox Judaism, davening and Shabbat and Kashrut and Lida and wearing tzitzit and things like that, things that keep your identity strong. And maybe a prime example where we really see this is how Orthodox kids on a college campus go about building their community, you know, and need to figure out what is Shabbat going to look like on the Brandeis campus? How are we going to keep Kashrut? Minyan becomes really, really important so that they could stay firm and connected and committed. In Israel, in the community that I'm in, it's not that halacha is not important. Halacha is obviously the foundation and the basis of all Jewish life. But dati is not a parallel word to orthodox. Orthodox means adhering to rules. Dati means religious, which someone might define as how connected they feel to Hashem, to spirituality, to tefillah, to learning Torah, to religious values and ideals. Of course, someone has to keep halacha because that's the framework within which we live our lives. But educationally, I find at least that the emphasis is often put on these other things. And over the years, I've noticed that this might explain why in Israel, people in the religious community often refer to the retzef dati, the religious spectrum with different people defining themselves along a continuum that doesn't fit neatly into the definitions that I was more used to in America, where sometimes it felt more binary or dichotomous, right? In terms of someone's religious or they're not religious, they're in or they're out, they're on the derech or they're off the derech. In Israel, the term dati lends itself to better, you know, better for better or worse, to something more fluid. You might think of yourself as I'm very dati if you dive in very seriously and you feel like you're in a daily conversation with Hashem, even if you're really not so careful about many other halachot. So while there's obviously, I think, um, a problematic part of this because it could lead someone who, uh, you know, feels this way to not necessarily take halacha as seriously as we would want them to. There's also a beautiful aspect, which is that many Israelis who may have been labeled not really religious if they live somewhere else, see themselves as like totally a part of the Dati world and feel very connected to it. And I think it might be that because also in Israel, because it's a Jewish state, and we don't have that same level of fear of assimilation and intermarriage, so it affects where people are able to put the emphasis. In Chutzlaret, it's like those laws, that's going to maintain your Jewish identity ultimately. And without them, you may be easily lost. Where in Israel, all the laws in Halachot are considered crucial, but like they're not the end point. They're more of like the starting point for then developing a deep and, you know, connected relationship with your Judaism and uh, with your God. That's how I've experienced that. That is just really fascinating. I'm listening to you speak and thinking about my own experiences and my own children and my own students and trying to put that together. And it, it does resonate. I wonder if part of the issue, it's not an issue positive or negative, part of the difference might even be in the United States. You talk about the need for survival and the importance of avoiding assimilation. I also wonder if it might be, and perhaps I'm being overly reductionist here, but the towering figure of Rav Soloveitchik's Atzal in the modern Orthodox community. He was the person who is the figurehead and the literal mm -hmm. person who created, in many ways, much of what American modern Orthodoxy became. There were other great gedolim in the United States, but not necessarily of the same stature who were associated with that world. And he was considered the halachic man par excellence, or at least 
that's how people often present him. Whether that's who he was as he presents it in his book, Ishalacha, is an interesting question. So I wonder if that emphasis on halacha per se might also be attributed to the way that he created what became modern orthodoxy. Absolutely. That, that is such a good point. I didn't think of it. And I think absolutely like Ish Halacha, again, whether or not people actually live up to that ideal, but as for sure as a value, I think uh, comes across. I also want to add that I think that this difference between Orthodox and Dati is also part of what affects the different relationships um, abroad and in Israel between the communities that we're discussing, the Mount Orthodox and Dati Lumi communities, with the more yeshivish and Haredi communities to their right. Because what do you mean? The, I'll tell you what, in the diaspora, the overarching goal of maintaining strong identity and not assimilating is shared by all segments of the Orthodox world. Yeshivish people and modern Orthodox Jews want their kids to stay in the fold. And they see themselves as needing to raise strong Jews in a primarily non-Jewish world and culture. Now, of course, they'll have very different ideas about the right balance to do that and how sheltered and, you know, but there's a continuum where parts of the modern Orthodox world and the yeshivish world flow into each other and overlap in many cultural ways. Um, certainly out of town, like out of the New York, New Jersey area, certainly I think in countries around the world, especially where there's often shuls that are a mix of a lot of kinds of Jews and where Orthodox Jews of different stripes will bond together in order to promote shared causes, in order to support shared institutions, whether it's the mikvah or the local pizza store. Now in Israel, because there's not that common threat that spiritual threat of non-Jews, even though we have other real threats here. Um, and because of the tension that exists, because not everyone here goes to the army, the Datilumi community and the Haredi communities are typically, sadly, much more separate, each one kind of developing on its own and not really overlapping much. Now, the positive part of this, as I've experienced it, is that the Datilumi community in Israel is not always looking over its shoulder. And they're not always afraid of being judged or looked down on or not accepted because they don't see themselves as on the same continuum as Haredim. And because of that, the nice part is that I think that this may be the reason why women's Torah learning and Batei Midrash have been able to like really take off in Israel and flourish, as well as religious roles for women, like Yoetzot Halacha in Nida or Tuanot in the Laws of Divorce or Rabbaniot, because no one's worried, oh, we're going to be ostracized or, you know, we're going to be like, um, you know, disconnected from the Haredi world. Same, by the way, I think with new approaches to learning and thinking about Tanakh, like that we see coming out of Herzog or new ways of learning Gemara. There's a certain kind of openness and creativity that happens when you're not worried about being like judged or thought of as beyond the pale or out of bounds. And on the other end of the spectrum, I don't think that the Zati community in Israel has the same worry about the conservative or reform movement because it's not as strong of a force in Israel as it is in Chutz Aretz. So you're also not worried about, oh, we're going to be thought of as not orthodox with regards to women's issues or LGBT issues or ways of thinking and approaching things. So the fact that the Dati Lumi community here is its own strong community definitely has a lot of positive outcomes. But for me, raising kids here in Israel, it's so important for me that my kids don't think of Haredim as the other and that they feel identification in terms of our shared commitment and our shared love for Avodah Hashem. And that sometimes is a real challenge. It seems to me that many people in the Datilumi community in Israel 
if they were, and again, anecdotally speaking, but if you were to ask them honestly, who do you feel closer to? Someone who is in the Haredi world or someone who is not religious but is a Zionist living in Israel, an Israeli, a lot of them would say, I feel closer to the non-Haredi, non-religious Zionist. We're both going to the army. We both live a similar life in that we are engaged with the world. Whereas in the United States, again, from my experience, if you were to ask a modern Orthodox, even a left-wing modern Orthodox Jew, if he feels more connection to the yeshivish, what we call Haredi community in the United States, or to Reformed Jews who probably say the yeshivish community. I think there's something probably inevitable about people feeling naturally closer to one community or another, even though on some level there's something tragic about Jews feeling a connection to some Jews and less so to other Jews. Something else which relates to that, and I don't know if etymologically this is accurate, but I think of orthodox as being orthodoctrine. In other words, a type of care about doctrine, which you alluded to right now in terms of the distinction between Orthodox Jews and conservative and reform. And in fact, the emphasis, I believe, of much of Orthodoxy on Ikari Emuna, the principles of faith, is in large part to distinguish Orthodoxy from non-Orthodox denominations. And I think for that reason, I'm curious if you agree with this, Shana, in Israel, there might be less doctrinaire worry about that. I don't mean that Israeli Jews in the Orthodox world don't care about Ikari Emunah, fundamentals of faith. They do. But it's not as definitional here. In other words, whereas in the United States, what might define you as Orthodox is sometimes, well, do you assent to these propositions? In Israel, I'm not quite sure that people think in those same terms. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, again, it's not because we don't believe in those same things, but I just don't think the emphasis is put in the same place. It just doesn't feel as important here as other things do, you know, and also the the non-religious Jews that we know, they are often not, not that there doesn't exist, you know, small conservative and reform movements, but they're not often ideological. Many of them are Masorati and they're very traditional and there's more of a continuum and flow into that community than there is into the Haredi community in some ways. I also think in some ways that there might be a practical implementation of how that distinction makes itself known. Let me emphasize again that I may be speaking out of ignorance. I have not lived as a resident in the United States basically since college, so it could well be that I'm off base over here. But because of the, again, we still believe them, that's not the issue, but the downplaying the, the centrality, I suppose, of the Karimuna, downplaying the centrality of them in what we define ourselves as, perhaps that has given places like Mahon Herzog, a place that talks about Tanakh, more willingness to approach certain issues that might be a third rail in Kutzlaritz, mm-hmm. where when you talk about certain elements of Bible studies from an academic perspective, I think of, for example, someone who teaches in the Gush, Rosh Hashiva there, Rav Amnon Bazak, who wrote a beautiful book, Arayel Mazeh, about Tanakh, where he mm-hmm. engages very thoughtfully and openly with academic approaches still maintains, of course, Torah min Hashemayim, and deals with things in a very open way, which I think a rabbi in the United States might think twice before doing. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that's how I see it. Yeah, I think you're right that that's an additional element to um, that's contributing to a lot of what we're talking about here. In addition to not, you know, not necessarily looking to the right and to the left, I think that doctrine part of it is also very, very significant. Okay, let's move forward into our discussion of the other two words. We talked about orthodox and dati. Let's talk about modern versus leumi. Can you give some insights about the differences there? Yeah, here too, the differences between uh, modern and leumi are really big, maybe even bigger in some way than our earlier discussion. Modern means to relate to present or recent times, right, as opposed to being in the past. 
And I've always thought of it that like the modern or modern orthodoxy, at least in the context of Rav Soloveitchik, who you were speaking about, who was one of the uh, main leaders and thinkers of the movement, is that we should engage in the world around us. We should dialogue with it. We should take from the best that it has to offer. It's the belief that we benefit religiously then from being connected to Hashem's world and all of its glory and from not shying away from the complexity of experience. And I found that in the American mind orthodox world that I came from, because of this, secular education is highly valued. So this entails a serious high school experience, first of all, and of course, college and likely graduate school. And there's like this thought that the engagement with the world doesn't just develop us as people, but also enhances our avodat Hashem. It's certainly what the whole philosophy of Yeshiva University and Toru Mada is based on. And Rav Lichtenstein, who is also thought of as a major leader of this movement, himself, we know, pursued a doctorate in literature at Harvard. But at the same time, he didn't compromise on his Torah values or on the tension or the time that he gave to Torah learning. And he writes about how when it's properly approached and balanced, he thinks general culture can be a genuinely ennobling and enriching force. And he writes, I have this quote here, he writes, for what is it that such culture offers us? In relation to art, profound expression of the creative spirit. In relation to life, the ability to understand, appreciate, and confront our personal, communal, and cosmic contexts. Above all, culture instills in us a sense of the moral, psychological, and metaphysical complexity of human life. Lichtenstein cautions, though, that the proper balance must be maintained and great care needs to be taken, that improper influences don't seep in and that we must always approach general culture critically from a Torah perspective. But this general culture is really, um, really valued. Now, I will share with you that I remember this made such an impression on me that on the Shloshim for Rav Lichtenstein, which was back in uh, 2015 after he passed away, his son, Rav Meir Lichtenstein, who's from your neighborhood, your neck of the woods in Beit Shemesh, he published an article in Makor Chayim, which is the popular weekly Datilumi paper in Israel, about how in this way of like really valuing general culture, his father and his grandfather, Rav Soloveitchik, promoted something and Rav Lichtenstein brought something to Israel that was very different from what we see in the Haredi world or even in the Israeli Dati Lumi world of Rav Kook. And he wrote in this article that Haredim believe that we should engage in Kodesh and things that are sacred as much as possible and only partake in, you know, whole and just regular day-to-day mundane things in the bare minimum that's necessary in order to live life. And he writes there that Rav Kook also thinks that we should primarily only engage in Kodesh but he believed that there are things like the army, which are also Kodesh, and that the army, like because it's something that is so important, takes on that holiness. And I remember actually my first Yom Hatzmaud in Israel, I was shocked at like the glorification in the Dati community of the tanks and the guns and like where I grew up and in Rav Lichtenstein's perspective, those are things that are necessary to defend us, but not things that we revel in and not things that we like, you know, glorify. And Rav Meir um, Lichtenstein went on to make the point that the philosophy of Rav Kook shares something in common with the Haredi outlook in that at the end of the day, it's only really Kodesh that has value. And I think we see this maybe manifested even more so in the Hardal community, which doesn't really have an equivalent in America. The Hardal community is stands for Haredi Lu'umi. It's part of the 
the tea community that wears kippo to go, meaning on the outside, someone may think they're like other Dachi Lumi people, they, the men go to the army. But in terms of their other values, they're very, very similar to Haridim in terms of secular studies or in terms of women's roles and development of halacha. And there's big gaps between the Khardal part of the Dati Lumi community and the other parts of the Dati Lumi community. And I'm part of a community like in the Dati Lumi community that I'm part of. It's a community where we believe that secular information and secular knowledge or nuance and complex thinking, all these things have value, but not because they're Kodesh. It's like they have their own value. We don't have to make them Kodesh. We don't have to make them holy in order to be valuable. This is something that Rav Luchensin brought to Israel from America. It comes with like a certain interest in understanding the world and in learning world history and in being exposed to other perspectives and a, a certain universalism or humanism. And in America, I think that happened naturally in the modern orthodoxy that I was in because people were more connected to non-Jews. They had non-Jewish neighbors. They had non-Jewish colleagues at work. Non-Jews weren't just Arabs or foreign workers like they are in Israel. In Israel, these things are way more complicated and there's large parts of the Jatibumi community, not just the Khardal community, that don't really fully embrace a lot of those aspects of what we thought were an inherent part of like being modern and being modern Orthodox. So if in America, let's say, or in other communities around the world, modern Orthodoxy like tries to kind of integrate being orthodox and also being modern in the parallel community in Israel the emphasis is placed on being religious dati and also being lumi which is being connected to a certain national identity so this includes like you know um having a sweeping vision for the cloud and for the collective. And it includes emphasis on the spirit nefesh and a real readiness to sacrifice for the country, or even a willingness to prioritize national needs over our own personal needs. Um, and this, we see this in so many ways. Like we see this in the enthusiasm for the army and we see this in um, Shirut Lumi and uh, in teens feeling connected to and passionate about politics before they barely even know what the parties stand for and then going out to you know uh, be part of political campaigns and to participate in demonstrations and how the religious community as a whole will organize and uh, participate in protests and we see it also in the deep emotion that people feel when they're singing Hatikva or when they're hanging an Israeli flag from their home or on their car. We see it in the seriousness of the holidays of Yom Ha'atzmaut and Yom Yushalayim, which are celebrated here in the religious community as like real Chagim, like real holidays and the parish called Tfilot in Shul, which by the way is another reason I think for the sometimes the unfortunate gap with Haredi because the Umi is like such a part of the Dati uh, identity of people who are part of this community and if you don't share something that's so big and that's so even part of the sacrifice that you're making for this country then sometimes that creates um that creates a divide but I'll just say one more thing which is that this love and attachment to the country translates into some very real, I find, and practical difference in the educational system. And you'll tell me what you think about this, because I found that in America, high schools, they're referred to as four-year college preparatory schools. And the goal of the high school is to prepare you for college and to help our children develop themselves, develop their talents and strengths, take as many classes as possible, do as many extracurriculars. And modern arts in America was like also developed in the context of American 
American culture, which places a big emphasis on the individual and on self-actualization and on self-expression. Now in Israel, which is not only influenced by Jewish culture, but also heavily influenced by Middle Eastern culture, there's much more emphasis on the collective experience. And I find that a rigorous high school education doesn't seem to be often as important, even to the people running the high school, as volunteering, as hiking the country, as another gibush chavrati bonding social activity. And I, I, I mean, even in workplace culture in Israel, I find this that like, you know, we'll have days off from work to have like a social gathering or to go out and be mitayel and hike the country. I mean, it's so different. And when I stopped to reflect on why is that so? It became obvious to me that high school in America is about preparing you for college, for university. High school here in Israel is about preparing you to be Mesharit Da'am, to serve your nation through the army or through Sherut Lume. And in that way, instead of like talking about, you know, um, study, 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 academics and skills or whatever, it's like, how could we encourage that volunteerism? And that's going to happen through being Majikin for youth movements. That's going to happen for running summer camps for kids with disabilities. It's going to happen by encouraging kids to help out neighbors and put up their Sukkot and to shovel, you know, their snow for free. It's going to happen by even like encouraging kids to have jobs. And to like learn how to like be a mensch and to contribute to the country, things like waitering and cleaning houses that are like just respected and done here um, and much less focus on materialism. All of this is so different from the culture that I came from. And I think it is encapsulated in the word um, versus modern, it's like a gulf between them. That is really interesting. And in fact, my wife, Elisa, and I were talking about this difference just the other day. Frankly, you put it into philosophical terms, which I think are very compelling. We were just talking about the mitziyut, the reality that our nieces and nephews in the United States, when they go to their high schools, they're talking about college. And our kids, when they're 18 years old, graduated from high school, college is just not something they're thinking about. Yes, they plan on going, but it's so far off in the future. It's not part of their Weltanschauung. It's not part of the way they think about their daily lives. They start so much later because of the army and because of yeshiva and shevut lumi and midrasha. It's a different way of thinking about things. You're saying it's not just because it's so far off. I always thought, well, of course they don't think about it when they're 18. They're not going to go for another five years anyway. But you're saying it's actually a philosophical difference, although it is interesting that you say it's less materialistic. I definitely think that's true. I also know that kids here do get jobs. My kids all work. And it's funny to think of that. That's not volunteering. They also volunteer, but they also want to make money. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I necessarily agree that that's a lack of materialism. I think it's simply a reality that they want to have money so they can do things. And people here perhaps mature when it comes to economic independence at a younger age, maybe. And therefore, they want to earn some money. So I'm not quite sure if it's necessarily a lack of materialism. Admittedly, they're not working on the stock market. They're working at Holy Bagel, but still. Yeah, I'll tell you why I think it's connected, because I think there's just um, a real respect here for like kind of getting your hands dirty and like doing your part and 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 being independent. And I and the reason I say that is because I happen to know many different kids who do, they don't need to work for money. Their parents are willing to pay for their driving lessons and they give them spending money and they want a job. You know, my mother was just telling me recently that she walked into the supermarket and she just couldn't believe that the cashier was like someone who in a thousand years and she said to the parents, what are they doing there? And they're like, he begged us that he wants to have a job. And they're like, okay, if you want 
want to go have a job. So I think there's something in the national spirit here that encourages that. And I think, yes, yes, a big part of it is like kids having spending money and having their own money and like needing the money. But I don't think it ends there. I think you're right. There is more to it than what I'm saying. I'm very proud of my kids that they want to work. I think it's great. They all get jobs. They waiter and they do this and that. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I'm still confused about something else that you said before. When you talked about the Dati Lumi, and we're speaking specifically about the Lumi aspect, I'm not quite sure I understand, Shana, from your perspective, the difference between Dati Lumi and Kharda, the Haredi Lumi world. It almost sounds like it's the same thing, just Haredi is a little bit more serious. And I thought there was more of a bigger philosophical difference. Can you elaborate a little bit on the differences between the Hardal and Dati Lumi communities? Should there be a difference in your mind? I don't know if I feel 100% comfortable labyrinthing because I'm not within the Hardal community, you know? So it's always hard to talk about something that you haven't experienced yourself or to claim to know what their philosophy is or what their values and ideals are. I do think that the Lumi part that we very strongly overlap in that in the sense of like um, caring about the country and caring about the politics and caring about serving the country and going to the army. I do think that beyond some of the issues that I spoke about that maybe have been influenced now in Israel by the modern Orthodox community in America, like the women's issues and the different ways of thinking of things, I to think that maybe there's sometimes a certain nuance or complexity within the Lumi perspective that may be different between the communities, definitely in terms of politics. You have to be extremely right-wing in order to be Lumi. Um, that's an example that I could think of at the top of my head. But I don't know, you know, when you're not within a community, it's hard to feel like you could talk about it in a way that you feel confident. Okay, that's fair. I want to ask you, Shana, about perhaps some of the disadvantages that accrue to each community that we're speaking about, specifically modern Orthodox and Datilumi or Hardal. Let's not make a distinction anymore. And I'll give you one example that I see here, which relates to what you said before. Because we are less afraid of assimilation in Israel, because you're assimilating into Jews, the survival of you as a Jew will not be affected whether you remain in the Orthodox or Dati community or not. Sometimes I wonder, and I don't have numbers or statistics to prove this, but I wonder if it's easier for kids to, quote unquote, go off the derech, to become datlash, datilisha avar, formerly religious, whereas in Chutzlaaretz, perhaps People might not, as you said, keep halacha to the same degree that a halachic Jew would hope that they would. But at the same time, they might still identify marginally as orthodox. The shul that they may not go to is still an orthodox shul because they see themselves as belonging to that broader community. And I wonder if in Israel that might be different. And I want to see, first of all, if you agree with that observation. And second of all, what other differences that might be to a disadvantage of each community you see? Yeah, I definitely agree with that observation. I think in Israel, the challenge often seems to be helping people understand that halacha is meaningful and significant in developing your religious identity. And um, it's interesting, though, that like as I'm thinking about that and saying that, I was thinking about how there is like this opposite like thing, which is that in um, when it comes to general culture, Modern Orthodox communities, let's say in America, are typically very Western in terms of their individualism. Whereas in Israel, when it comes to general culture and the Umiyut, where the focus is more on the collective. But when it comes to our religious lives, there's almost a flip that in Israel, in our religious lives, 
the emphasis is more on like the personal, spiritual, Dakti religious connection, where in um, other countries, there's so much more emphasis on the collective, on the community, on the on, on the communal framework, on the commitment. And I think, yeah, because of that, we know that making sure that um, our young people here understands what it means to kind of stay with in the bounds of a certain halakhic community and why that's important in terms of even a spiritual life um, could be a challenge, you know. But on the other side, I think in the Mount Orzas communities, the challenge is often helping people go beyond just that halakhic framework and trying to develop something deeper and personal and um, a real amuna that's not just like checking off the boxes, you know, like you could keep Shabbos and not do any malachal, but like you experience Shabbos. You could daven and say all the words, but like, are you actually talking to Hashem? So it is flip, um, I think, challenges. And I think in general, I mean, we already touched on a bunch of different aspects, but I think that in general, all of these things are not all or nothing. You know, all of the aspects that come up in Man Artax community or the Dati Lumi community, each one has like a positive and a less positive side that make up two sides of the same coin. So one is definitely what you just said in terms of where the religious emphasis is. Another one that I thought of is that um, sometimes we may think that modern Orthodox education outside of Israel, at least in America, encourages students to be too focused. Um, on themselves and to focus on their own self-actualization, even though it's amazing, like the individuals that come out of that educational system and like all the opportunities that they've had and all the clubs and all the things that they've experienced, all the strengths that they've developed. Um, In Israel, I think one of the challenges is the opposite, that when you're pushing uh, kids all the time to be focused on the collective and on like, you know, being out there for the clow, sometimes they're missing opportunities to build themselves. So it could be that in the sense that school and academics are just not as important. And half the time they're like, oh, I don't need to go to school today. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We go to school every day. And they're like, no, we're not really doing anything. You know, and it's like, I, I, I just can't relate to <laughs> I've that. I've been like, there and every, had the same experience with my kids. Every day for me of school was like, if you miss one day of school, you missed a time, you know, and here that doesn't seem to be the case. I experienced it over and over. And I, I remember one of my kids when they were in seventh grade, they were in this computer programming Klug that was so stimulating and that we paid extra money for it wasn't part of school of course and one day they contest and they're like oh I'm not going to the Klug today because I'm going to volunteer at the Pinachama like the local place here in Gushetion where they give out food to soldiers who are on duty now what are you going to say to your kid like 13 year old boy he wants to volunteer at the Pinachama that's beautiful. That's wonderful. But part of me always felt like, I mean, that's so amazing. And it's so great that you're, you know, not entitled and whatever. But on the other hand, maybe if you developed yourself more now, you'll be better positioned to give in bigger ways later on. Or maybe if you have some space for yourself right now and you don't feel suffocated, then you won't have to go off to the far east to go on some track later to find yourself. So I do feel like it would be nice if... um we were able to sometimes bring some of that uh, emphasis on the individual or the self-actualization within like the developing people's strengths also to Israel. Um, and in so many ways, you know, I don't love how they don't track 
Limude Kojesh classes here because that socialism kibbutz part I think is still here. I I love how the kids here are like madrichim and they volunteer at Shava for kids with special needs. But sometimes you're like maybe this is also the time to learn some more Torah or to learn some more anything, anything, not even Torah, you know. And and I'll just add one other thing, which is that the kids here are super independent and they organize things for themselves and they all go on a tiyul to the Kinneret or away for Shabbat in this yeshuv that you never heard of. And you're like, where are the adults? There's no adult oversight. It's not always safe. So it's like, that's definitely one of the things that I think uh, is an issue as a second one. A third thing is that I think, as you said before, like it's wonderful that we could deepen our values as part of the strong Lumi community here and not look over our shoulder. And I think that's a struggle in other places, but the challenge of really staying connected to other streams um, of Jews on both sides, by the way, also Chilunim. Like, you know, there's a big gap sometimes between the Jatilumi community and Chilunim. And obviously between Haredim is something that I think uh, is a real struggle here. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, two other quick things that I'll mention. One is that in the diaspora, a challenge that I think, I mean, I don't live there anymore, so I also don't want to speak for them. But I, from my experience there, I was 32 when I made Aliyah, so I wasn't, you know, super young um, in terms of like having lived an adult life. It's a challenge sometimes to feel connected to the greater um. You feel connected to your shul, to your community, but not necessarily to to a nation. That sense of nationhood, that sense of responsibility to Jews beyond your bubble of your Orthodox community um, is, is not necessarily always there. Whereas in Israel, people may feel very connected to Israel, but then sometimes you're like, you know, there's also a world beyond Israel. You know that history isn't only Jewish history. <laughs> you know that literature isn't only reading Israeli poems. Like there's a whole world out there that sometimes I feel like in Israel people um, sometimes can miss. And the last thing that I'll say is that in Chutzla Aretz, I find that like our best and brightest kids are super intellectual and like nuanced and sophisticated. The students that are coming to me do those and they're from and committed. But sometimes um, there's a certain idealism or passion or willingness to sacrifice that in Israel you really, really, really have. The flip side in Israel is that in Israel you have these like crazy passionate kids, but sometimes they um, their thinking is really black and white really black and white. And on that point, um, I once heard Rav Moshe Tarragon say that in America, kids are kids and they have permission to be kids and not bear like too much weightiness or too much responsibility for a very long time. And there's obviously something very nice in that, especially if you're the kid. Um, but you're also much more dependent on your parents. You're often more entitled. Some, some people never grow up. Now in Israel, he said, kids are exposed really early to really hard stuff, terror and war and loss and grief. And in a way that makes them super tough. You don't have to hide things from them. They contribute, they sacrifice, they're way more independent. But because they're exposed to these things at an age where they don't have the ability to think complexly yet, they literally don't have the ability to think that way. It often leads to very black and white thinking about very complex issues like politics and Arabs and state and Haredim. And sometimes they never grow out of that. 
So if your friend or your friend's sibling was killed when you were an adolescent, that will have a huge impact on your worldview, even into adulthood. And I think that, you know, on the one hand, okay, it brings passion and idealism. And on the other hand, sometimes it's like, are you able to see beyond kind of that opinion that you formulated when you were 15? There is a lot to say there. And I, before we get to some of the other things, I, I have to say that what you talk about in terms of school is something which I simply can never relate to. I've been here for a long time and I, I've been here for more than half my life and I still, and I wasn't someone who wanted to go to school. I would have loved to be able to say to my parents, I'm not going in today. That was just not happening. But this thing, my kids will say, yeah, I'm not going in today. I'm like, what? And I, I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very, very difficult for me to absorb what that means. I want to talk about the last thing you said in terms of that black and white thinking. On some level, I think there's a lot to be said for the truth of that. And I don't want to talk about politics because that really isn't what we're discussing today. I do feel that sometimes kids grow up and don't necessarily grow out of that black and white thinking, which can be a problem. And in fact, I want to read you a quote, which I was looking at yesterday, but Mikria, just by coincidence, from God, Man, and History by Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz. And mm-hmm. this quote appears on page 141 for those who want to look it up. He said, the idea of a holy nation is not to be confused with that of nationalism. The goal of nationalism is to serve the nation. A holy nation serves God. The law of nationalism is national self-interest. The law of a kingdom of priests is the will of God. From the point of view of nationalistic ideology, the nation is an end in itself. The holy nation is a means to an end. And he continues explaining that that means to an end, that end he's talking about is some universalist type of vision of a perfect world where we're supposed to influence the world. And we don't have to get into that right now because that's really a different conversation. But I do fear sometimes that his description of the difference between an ideal form of Jewish nationalism that he's looking towards, which is not real nationalism, can often be confused among our youth. And then accordingly, when they grow up among our adults, for pure nationalism. Now, Rev. Cook himself, mm-hmm. many years ago, before there was a state of Israel, he warned us that our nationalism has to remain pure of some of the elements of the negative nationalism that appears in other countries. And I'm afraid, Shana, that often we confuse that and we forget that. In the religious community, in the Datila Umi world, we often forget that the state of Israel is a means to an end, to become a holy nation on our land, rather than simply to have a country, no matter what that means and no matter what that entails. Do you think that's a problem as well? Yes, definitely. And I think um, it's a lot connected to what we were talking about. Like, it's so personal for people here. It's so emotional. They're like, their heart's in the game and the stakes are really high. And it's hard to kind of think sometimes beyond that in some kind of meta way when it's like life and death and you're really living it and feeling it. So, um, and yet it's something that like we have an imperative to really keep before us all the time. I also think sometimes I see it and that sometimes people make Aliyah from a place like America. And it's like, okay, I made Aliyah. That was like the dream, the end all of the all of my religious aspirations. And now I'm here and it's like, no, Aliyah is just a step in like further developing your religious life. You know, sometimes people think if you make Aliyah, so now you don't, you know, they'll come and they'll be less religious here. And it's like, this is supposed to be a step in the direction to something greater. This isn't the end goal in of itself. Absolutely. I do think, however, there are some people for whom this is actually reversed. What I mean is that there are some people I know in the United States, well-meaning people, and my experience is the United States, but I assume it's true in other countries as well. 
And their understanding of Israeli politics broadly is very black and white. And they say, oh, why don't they just do X, Y, and Z? And they have all the solutions. It's very, very simple. It's very, very easy to solve everything if only our politicians would listen to them. And I see their counterparts in Israel often telling them, no, it's not really so simple. You don't understand. So even though I think what you said before about black and white thinking is definitely a problem here, and I see it too, and I talk about high schoolers who would never grow up, I definitely understand that as a real issue. On the other hand, on the other hand, I think sometimes that can also be endemic to certain communities in the United States, certain individuals who, not necessarily because of that black and white thinking engendered from experience, but rather from simply having a simplistic view not understanding the realities of life over here, and also, frankly, not having to live with the consequences if they're wrong. Their children are, by and large, not the ones serving in the army or living near the border, so that their simplistic solution, should it be proven to be a mistake, frankly, in terms of their own personal life, it's not their lives on the line. And I think that might lead sometimes to their own simplistic thinking. Yeah. And especially because also when you're far um, from anything, uh, sometimes it's harder to see the nuances that you would see up close. So yeah, none of these things are meant to be across the board, or this is everyone, or that any of these challenges can't apply in one place or the other. It's just some of the things that I see to be particularly challenging in each of the places. But by no means uh, do we not deal with all of these challenges wherever we are. So Shana, Do you think that there's a way, a methodology through which we can combine the best of that which is in the modern Orthodox world and the Dati Lumi world, and that can perhaps avoid some of the pitfalls of each of those worlds to create an identity for our children that will really include the parts that we really think are positive and can avoid the parts that are negative in a single unified personality? Is that a possibility or is that a a dream that's not really possible? I think it's absolutely possible. I don't I, I, I don't just think it, I believe it and I really, really feel it. First of all, I think it's the beauty of Olim. It's the beauty um, and the power of what people who made Aliyah could contribute to Israel. When you come from one place to another and you speak two languages, not just literally, you speak two languages culturally, you've seen other things. Um, there's such potential for you to bring a certain sensibility to the place that you're coming and to introduce something a little bit new. And we know that there's been an amazing long line of educators who have come, let's say, from North America and have brought a lot of these sensitivities and sensibilities to Israel, like Rav Lichtenstein, like Rav Nachlam Rabinavich, who was in Maulad Dumin, like Rabinit Khana Henkin, who found in Nishmat, like Rabinit Malkabina, who found in Matan. And same, by the way, in the other direction, when Israelis travel abroad and they lecture or they go for shlichut, they also bring something with them. And I think um, since making Aliyah, my husband and I have really tried to hold on to and also pass on the things that are valuable to us, to our children, while also embracing new ideas. I think the Mount Orthodox community that I grew up in gave me a lot of things that are very deeply meaningful to me. But I also moved here and I moved here wanting to be part of the Israeli world, not wanting to feel like I'm just living in America, in Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that just because something is Israeli, that makes it automatically better or holy or that I'm just going to, you know, kind of like buy into it without being thoughtful and deliberate. You always need to kind of be thinking and weighing and considering issues. 
is. And I think a lot of what I try to do is engage my own children and my students on these issues, like at home, in work, um, at my Shabbos table, talking all the time about how could we integrate and take the best of these different worlds? Could we soften the dichotomies? Could we not be so binary about the options? Can we say, Afshar gam the gum, maybe this and this? We don't need to choose one at the expense of the other, um, even if it's tough. Can we try to synthesize, even if it's not easy? You know, I find myself always coming back to, can we live with the tensions? When, when I talk about living with tension, it's because I say this to my students all the time, when we live with tension, it's because both things are really, really important to us. And it would be maybe easier to just cancel one out and then I wouldn't be in tension, but then I would be denying myself something that I really care uh, very deeply about. So Israelis already live in a culture that's a mix of Western and Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures. And I think there's hope that also on a religious level, we could try to mix some of that modern Orthodox, you know, uh, Western, maybe uh, some values that we bring with us with some of the Datilumi and national values that are here, and to create some kind of um, hybrid model. And when I think about that practically, I think about can my kids be deeply spiritual and ruchani, and also be mechuyav hilchati, also be halachically committed, you know? Can we believe in our values and also not look at haridim as the other? Can we prioritize Israel and still be engaged and aware that there's a world beyond this country? Could we be very connected to the Am and also still develop ourselves as individuals who have depth and who have our own strengths? And could we feel passionately about things in this country and also encourage complex and nuanced thinking? I don't think any of those are easy, but I want to believe and I do believe that it is possible. And based on what you've said so far, I think it definitely is true that we see that existing or coexisting, those ideas merging together in several very, very important figures. To speak of people who are no longer with us, I think immediately of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein's Atzal, you mentioned Rav Rabinovich, as well as Atzal, as well as Rav Shagar's Atzal. These are three people yes. who are all able to have that national identity living in Israel while at the same time bringing in the ideals of modern orthodoxy that we talked about, this concept of engaging with the world and having it affect our thought in a very positive way. If we go back further, obviously, Rav Kuksatzal did something quite similar. I just hope that we can have models in our world today, living models, and I'm sure there are living models as well, who also embody these ideals that we can use as an example for ourselves. Yeah, and all those figures spoke to Israelis. Someone may have thought, what does someone coming with a PhD from Harvard have to offer, you know, the Israeli farmer, uh, you know, like, and, and it wasn't true. Like, I mean, I think it took time and took adjustment, but we know the success of Yeshiva Haratzion in terms of the impact that it's made in terms of their values and ideals on Israeli culture. Not that everyone is bad or bought into that, but I do think that, um, there's a lot more cross-pollination and sharing of ideas and uh, values and cultures that can happen. In that case, let me ask a final question, Shana. In terms of creating this dialogue, we're talking about models, and you talked about people going to Chutzlaretz or people from Chutzlaretz coming to Israel in order to inculcate their differing values in a different population. Is there a way to broaden the dialogue? Is there a way, perhaps, that we can have this dialogue take place on a wider level so that it's not just among some of the greats or some of the strong thinkers that we have, but among the broader population as well. 
Yeah. So first of all, the, obviously, like the internet and podcasts and all these kinds of mediums have been great for kinds of getting out some of the things that are going on here to other parts of the Jewish community and for us to be more aware of other things that are going on there. And I see the kind of um, dialogue that takes place on your Facebook groups and through this podcast. And it's amazing that people could be exposed to each other. I think the first step is really trying to create opportunities for real listening, real listening that requires real humility, that requires um, a willingness to hear things, to hear people out, to not assume that we already know what they're going to say and yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I, I'm open to hearing something different. I, I want to appreciate where you're coming from and what you're bringing to the table. Now, uh, th just this week, I participated in a program with Yishai Zinger. He's the son of Abdul Zinger, who's um, the Rosh Yeshiva of Makor Chaim, the high school here in Gush Etzion, and Rabbi Yehuda Channelist from America. Uh, the program was called Ifnai Vilifnim. It's something that's run out of the Makor Chaim school, and they're working hard, the two of those people, to bring the language of this deeper spiritual connection and self-reflection to American high schools. And they had been met with such thirst and with real success. And it's incredible to hear about what they're doing and see how American high school students are, you know, one period a week opening up and reflecting and talking about ideas and how, how it's really, um, how it's really having a strong influence on them. And I think it's amazing, like different ways, let's say that the Torah of Israel and the thinkers or the Torah that's going on here in Herzog or people like Rav Stav or Rav Tamir Granod or like Rav Shagar, names that people in other parts of the Jewish community don't always know, um, but they have so much to offer, how we could get that out there. It's that synthesis that I'm interested in. And also in the other direction, I think in Israel, there's been renewed interest in a figure like Rav Salavich. There's a lot of interest in Rabbi Jonathan Sachs now in Israel. Um, all of his books have been translated into Hebrew. These things make a difference. And uh, as, as I was walking out from that morning in Makar Chaim, Yishai Singer said that through his work in America, which is very new for him, it's very Israeli, Tekoa, and very different worlds, he said that he's actually learned how to make his approach more into a system and a methodology, and he's learned to mm -hmm. think about it in more organized ways and hone the material, and he kind of had been thinking about it in that more fluid way, and then he's like, wow, they wanted like principles, and they wanted me to hone it down, and it was good for him, he said, to go through that process, so all of this stuff is really important to me. And though it's a lot to hold on to, I think it's too meaningful uh, to give up, which means that we just have to keep like talking, talking, talking all the time, processing with a lot of people around us. And um, I guess I'll close with saying that I feel so grateful to have gotten the education and to be raised on the values that I got from my American community. And at the same time, I feel so beyond blessed to be raising kids in Israel, even though I know and you know that they're not going to be exactly like me. And, and that's okay. My goal is that we share and that they share with me and Judah many deep core values, even though they may come to express them in different ways because of the different culture that they're in. And I think that's, you know, one last thing that I want to say, which is that when you move from one place to another, you need to know when to let go. You need to know when to lean into the culture, the community that you're a part of.
especially with kids. You can't move somewhere and raise your kids here and always be making them feel like something's wrong or something's off or this isn't normal and this isn't how I grew up and, you know, like what's with the approach here? Even though at times you could definitely feel that way, like we said about school, I think when you move somewhere, it requires a willingness to really participate and to buy into the place that you're in and to really at least first listen to and explore some of the values. Again, you could be thoughtful, you could be intentional, you don't have to automatically swallow everything as is. You definitely don't need to totally conform. And there's certainly some sensibilities that I will never want to let go of and that I want my kids to have also. But I believe that as part of the integration that we are trying to create, even with all the challenges and the prices, um, the ability to kind of like let go sometimes and meet my kids where they are and also really see the beauty in the new life that we're in is something that um, has only really, really, really enriched my life. And I think enriched the life of our family in ways that um, are so deep that sometimes it's even hard to put into words. That's a really beautiful sentiment, Shane. I appreciate your sharing your heart that way. That's very much, now that you're putting into words the way that I feel, I'll just add one point and echo what you said before. There's a time to let go and a time to listen, even when it comes to our kids, and perhaps especially when it comes to our kids. It's not just a matter of talking and telling them what we think, but when they inevitably make those different choices in life, however they are, and hopefully they'll still be in line with our values and we'll certainly be proud of them. But understand when they do things that we don't really understand, it's not only a matter of letting go, but also a matter, as you said, to listen to how they feel about things. They've grown up in Israel in a way that you and I have not. And because of that, they're going to see things differently. And perhaps that's a gift from God too, that they have this specific Israeli perspective that we can't have, but we can at least allow it to flourish by giving it credit and allowing ourselves to listen and try to understand as best as we can, even if we're never going to understand how they're not going to go to school when they don't feel like going to school. I guess I have my limits too. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um, it is a privilege to raise Israeli children here, and it's um, it's an ongoing process of growth and learning and lots and lots of humility. Yeah. I'll conclude by saying that the greatest blessing that Hashem has given me unquestionably is the fact that I am so fortunate to have a wonderful family, a wonderful wife, wonderful children, wonderful in-law children, living and growing in the land of Israel together. It is a tremendous blessing and a tremendous privilege and a tremendous responsibility on all of us to grow together in a way that will make use of this gift, bringing us closer to Hashem, closer to the people of Israel, and to hopefully embody, as best as we can as a family, the ideals that we are striving for. And I wish you the same brachot, Shana, and I wish everyone in our listening audience the same brachot too. Shana Goldberg, I want to thank you so much. Every time I speak with you, I learn so much, and I'm inspired, and this time was certainly no different. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. 
You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.